is there a day that I am not reminded that I'm a black man? No. From Spall Dameron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney. Welcome to the Prosperous Doc Podcast. I'm Shane Tenney and glad to have you with us today. If you're a regular listener, you know that Part of our mission on the Prosperous Doc Podcast is to bring you real life stories of your colleagues in white coats around the country to educate, motivate, inspire you to professional, emotional, relational, and sometimes financial wellness. Today's topic, I have felt compelled to address for a number of months now, but frankly didn't know how or where to begin. I'm not talking about global pandemics and uh, certainly not talking about politics. Today, we're going to talk about racism. Now, candidly, I've been nervous to address this on this show because of a number of reasons. I'm a middle-aged white guy with no training on the topic or in social justice, and I'm not even sure I have the right vocabulary to use. If I'm as honest about the topic as I want to be and as I wish people were, I know I've got blind spots in my own life when it comes to racism and implicit bias. But I want to do my part to try and change the tone in our country around this. I'm sad and embarrassed that it's taken video footage of horrific circumstances for me to understand that racism is a real problem in America. And I believe that any genuine, thoughtful conversation brought with a little humility is way better than hiding. And that's what I want to try and open up today. At the risk of misspeaking or handling the topic in a way that might hurt or offend, I want to ask up front that you give me the grace and hope that you'll hear my heart in addressing this topic in hopes that it can encourage you in your family, in your practice, in your corner of the country. I'm joined today by Dr. Aaron Brandt. Dr. Brandt is currently a pediatric orthopedic surgery fellow at Children's Hospital Colorado. As one of nine adopted children, I think you're going to quickly see why his perspective on this topic is pretty compelling. Dr. Brandt, thanks for, so much for being with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, feel free to call me Aaron, of course. Okay. Well, Aaron, you've, you and I have crossed paths a couple times over the last few years, and I've really enjoyed getting to hear the highlights of some of your story growing up in a large family with adopted siblings from three different races. So maybe we'll just start there. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and family growing up? Of course. Yeah. Obviously not the authority on racism. So when you asked me to be the the speaker on that, I was a little nervous myself. But but I do like my family story is pretty pretty unique and pretty impactful and kind of just brings a different perspective for sure. And I started for me. Obviously, was born as a in Nebraska, and then I was adopted as a baby, but kept a lot of contact with my mom through throughout that. I was the third adoption into my my family. They had already adopted a couple Korean children from an orphanage coming from pretty dire circumstances. 
and then I happened to be in need of a home and my dad was willing to open the doors. It was started off as a temporary thing and then morphed into permanent. And then we had six more follow me building the Brant 12 because they had already had three of them, three of their own. But yeah, so we have five Korean, four black, and then obviously the three uh, white children to my parents and all of us living in small town, Nebraska. So it was pretty, I mean, you can imagine kind of what, what that sets you up for. Yeah. What was life like in the community and in school and things like that for you? Honestly, it was all over the place. And that's, that's the funniest thing is that there was so much like randomness and kind of chaos to everything that we did. Our home was kind of like that. Obviously, a lot of different personalities, people coming from really tough situations, all kind of dropped into one place. And then during this time, during growing up, I mean, I remember kids coming in, like my dad and mom pulled in about 30 other kids from all over the world just for temporary, some of them like foreign exchange students, young uh, mothers who just needed a little bit of reprieve. But these people were coming in, it was like a revolving door. And me as a child, I'm just like, ooh, new play, like play things coming in and out. And so it's just, I mean, that, that weirdness was normal for me. And then I went to school and it almost was more odd because it just became a much more uniform group of people. But initially, I mean, I, I didn't really think much of it. I was the only black kid in the school, obviously. We were kind of the, the diversity of our community. But the, in general, I didn't really kind of feel it up until, I guess, first, second grade when people started kind of realizing. And I mean, we were obviously just visibly different. So yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. It kind of just sets you up for the most simple and basic differences and a lot of kind of growing pains with that. But um, I'm picturing your family as kind of the the melting pot United Nations in, uh, in central white Nebraska. <laughs> uh, we were, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's the joke. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and it was like all over the world we tended to have people from, and like I put out that story through a great website called love what matters, uh, recently. And a lot of the people that came through our home actually from, uh, they, they're back in other countries, Venezuela and Colombia things like that. And they actually reached out through Facebook to my parents and, and checked in with them, which was pretty cool. So it kind of, it got, it got down to them and they loved reading that too. And, but it really was, it was, it was a uh, crash course in kind of different cultures. And I picked up a little Spanish along the way, trying to keep up. And it's a crazy environment to, to kind of be in and, and to see work and not work both at the same time. And then how we kind of worked through that together was, was pretty awesome. Now, how old were you or what was the, the circumstance when you remember first being aware of your own difference from the community around you? It was right when we started school. I mean, that was, that was the simplest uh, way to put it. And I had very close friends from the start. And uh, there's a lot of, we talk about colorblindness and I wouldn't, I don't like using that word. I think it's silly and I usually correct even people within my family when we we try to use it but there is a little bit of element of that as children and there's an opportunity there for us to not push them down that path but it was very easy for everyone to kind of realize I mean black kid I was also taller than everybody so it's like I stood out like a sore thumb but so I had very close friends who uh, it was never an issue but 
I was definitely kind of on the outside for a period of time and definitely kind of just focused on that group. But I mean, from it's just any little thing people can use to pick on other people. And that's kind of how growing up is in general. I think everyone's got their things and mine just happened to be being a tall black man in a small town. So yeah, I realized it quick and had to kind of, I went through, I think I went through that frustration of being different early and dealt with it very, very early compared to some of my siblings. And I also was there from the start, you know, like I was there as a baby. So some of my siblings came when they were 13, 14, one of them 17. So it's just hard to like you're just kind of getting thrown into the lines then, whereas I got to kind of grow up and grow through that. And when do you remember first being mistreated for being black? It was probably, I just found a, a journal that I was keeping. And I remember my, my biological mother giving me this journal as a birthday gift, but it was kind of a way to uh, write down feelings and kind of during a hard, harder time. And so it was, it was a great journal. And I, I went back and read through it because I found it in my old stuff as I was packing. But I specifically talk about a, a track meet and being called some racial slurs and then called out for uh, stuff like that as when I was 10. I wrote about it. And so it was, it was pretty hard to read because I don't remember that. And I don't know if it was like, a, a, like suppressing my some of my memories because I really, I do have a hard time kind of going back in my mind and remembering before I was about 16, just kind of the, some of the specifics, but reading that was just kind of like a little slap in my face as well. Just a, a reminder that stuff was going on and I was kind of feeling it during that time. And that was definitely that period where I was kind of going through it and having to find my, find my, a little bit of strength. And I mean, one of the things, and I, I remember Jackie Robinson became a hero of mine pretty quickly. Part of that was by necessity. And me and my dad talk about this a lot. Um, obviously, there's things that he can't help me through with relation to race and dealing with that stuff. And he had told me one time before that even adopting me was a big deal to him because he did not know if it was going to be the right situation for me to bring a Black kid into that community. Like, almost surely was going to have an impact and, and have its challenges. So he was, he was really, really thinking through that one and trying to make sure that it was going to be the right situation. Cause I mean, adoption is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing, but you can also adopt into tough spots and it may not be better than the circumstances that you came from. So he talked to me about that when I was older and, a, and an adult. So it was, it was uh, really, it was kind of a cool moment for me and him to kind of go, go back and rehash. And I wanted to kind of learn his motives and, and understand his thinking. And it was, a, it was, it was cool to hear that from him, but, and then Jackie Robinson just came into my life just because I, that was a black man athlete who was kind of misplaced and, and in a, in a area that he didn't have a lot of people that looked like him and acted like him. And so I just, uh, there were some parallels that I could kind of latch onto and he's been a, a constant figure for me. So as I've kind of gone through life, that's that he's been kind of a big, my family and then the, obviously him have been big uh, kind of focal points and offering me some guidance. Have you had to learn how to talk about race and racism or growing up with 
the diversity that was present in your family? Has it just been a natural part of, of your life? That is a tough one because I still feel like I'm learning. It has always been a part of my narrative and my story. That's just, it is what it is. You come up in a family like that, people want to know about it. And then even just with the adoption side of things, I've talked to families and then had those conversations. And I remember that going back pretty early. So I've always kind of had to have those conversations and discuss that type of stuff. But even then, just having these conversations with my friends uh, growing up uh, was not easy and, and took some challenge. And a lot of things I let slide that even just in the current climate, I'm realizing was probably a little bit of a disservice to us in the past and, and just kind of defending myself a little bit. But then I, I went to NYU for medical school and I did that to just kind of open up my open up my world even more. And I got there and realized that I don't have the vocabulary and I don't have the the background. And I, I didn't grow up in some some of these black communities that have had to deal with different types of issues and different types of racism racism and prejudice and it's just a completely different ball game there and i i think that that was very valuable for me because i can't talk about this and it, me me and you just talking about this is not the end here it's there are so many stories so many aspects of this there's so many ways that people can experience prejudice and go through that and deal with that I'm still learning and I'm still making a lot of mistakes and, and I don't use a lot of the vocabulary because I don't know it well enough and I don't want to do it a disservice. So in my way of approaching it has always been just to talk about my experience, talk about my family, talk about the experiences that I've seen, because that's the important thing too, is you got to live life with other people. I think you've got to, you were telling me earlier, you've got a story where I think you started finding your vocabulary around the dinner table one night, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Vocabulary is an uh, interesting way to put it. Yeah. This is the dinner table story is one that my dad told me again, this was late. I think I was living in New York and we were, I was about to like present race as a, as a topic within the medical school. And because I mean, in professional America, it's still there. The numbers are not there. So obviously they, these types of things come up. But I remember him telling me this story and it was a way for me to kind of understand sometimes just being blunt and honest is, is as good as anything. And, but I will, I will give this to you and your audience at, at risk of making it making people uncomfortable. But this is literally just a normal evening night with, that we were sitting around the dinner table and one of my little brothers got in trouble. And he threatened to run away, which was a common occurrence, obviously, with a bunch of adopted kids. I mean, that card can get pulled anytime. But uh, threatened to run away. And uh, one of my other little brothers just like called him out and goes, go ahead. Go ahead. Run back to your old family if you want to get beaten again. And then my immediate response was to defend my other little brother. And I made fun of him for not being brought home from the hospital because my other little brother, my dad went out, out and got him from Jersey like two days in, uh, after he was born. So essentially just calling each other out for the tough pass. And I remember my dad saying he sat there and was super uncomfortable and almost kind of biting his nails, wondering what, like, what kind of reaction we would all have if it was going to turn into like a fight. And he said, after a couple seconds, we all just started laughing, like laugh out loud, like rolling on the floor, just 
could not contain ourselves. And it was what he says that it's the moment where he realized he was doing something right, which I thought was just so cool because it is super crazy for me to go back in my mind and think about how aggressive and mean we were to each other. But there's so much, it's just so upfront. Like we were, we were never fed lines or there was nothing sugarcoated with how we were raised. And he couldn't do that. Like if he wanted to bring us in, in that kind of a kind of family into a home like that and, and try to paint a different picture. I think it, then, then you're, I mean, I just think yeah. it wouldn't have worked. And we, man, we, we knew our, our past, we were able to embrace them early on. And I think that that gives you a real strength and ability to kind of deal with things as they come. And we dealt with stuff together. Like I, I, I don't think there's any shame in any of our past because of who we are today. And that, that's kind of what's important, I think. Yeah, I think as you remember it and experience and your dad recounts it to you, it was a healthy event, not comfortable, but because in my mind, I'm just hearing it and thinking it's the epitome of speaking the truth in love because yeah. you were in a safe environment where you knew you were loved, then I'm going to hit you directly and, yeah. and, and you can take yeah. it. Now, the word racism has been used more this year and entered our society more than at any time I remember. And in thinking about my own reaction to the word, I realized that I used to think that it was being used by people who were overreacting or trying to get a reaction to something. And now I see and believe that our society is finally acknowledging abhorrent actions and attitudes with what seems to be the right label to me. What's your yeah. take on it? Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's just, that's a hard one. I uh, just, it, like we talked about vocabulary and how you use it is important. I think racism is a, the right word. I think it has just taken a really dark kind of meaning and that the people aren't, aren't understanding the simplicity of what racism is. It's kind of classism and things like some of those types of concepts are more, they're just social based. They, they shouldn't have as much of an emotionally evoked response in my mind. If you're just looking at them at their base, they cause issues and they cause these systemic and deep seated problems. And that's what we're realizing. Like this, there is racism going on all the time. And if you are a black person, a, a woman from a sexism standpoint, if you, if you are any of the, in any of these categories, these aren't new things. These are things we deal with on a daily basis. And I was talking to one of my other co-residents and good friends, and we were talking, like, is there a day that I am not reminded that I'm a black man? Like, no. Like, and I'm pretty open and comfortable in my skin. Like, I obviously, I'm happy with where I'm at and what I've, I've dealt with that as a child, you know, like I'm, I'm done and I'm really happy to be here. But there are not days that I'm not like obviously aware, and and I I wasn't around that all the time. So even just being that, even if I'm in a community of black people, it's I'm still aware that I'm a black man who grew up in a white community. That there's an element of disconnect there too. So I think that it's there, and it's created these undercurrents that are that are constantly at play, and that's what's important right now. Is I think. Unfortunately, it's, it's taken social media and just the presence of it 
for more people to become aware. But you're still seeing a lot of people, you're overreacting or we're, we're, we're overdoing it. But it's just hard to say, you know, like it's, it's there in front of you. And it, like there's some objective, I mean, there's an image of it, you know, like it's, it's just hard not to look at it. And, and that's what I think we're seeing more is just more people are being presented with these images and these, these facts. And it's becoming more hard to deny. And I, I, that's kind of how I, I, I view my childhood too. Like I, I am very close with a lot of my friends and my classmates and there's seven or eight of us that are still, uh, we were all in one of my friend's weddings a couple of years ago, but even within that group, we've went through ups and downs and a lot of them talking about my experiences and kind of just not getting it and not, not understanding where I was coming from or, or you're overreacting or um, gaslighting is a word that is being talked about more. And that was going on. And it usually took a bad situation and them having to see it or experiencing it with me for those, that door to open. And, and then our relationship changed. And I think that that's, that's probably why we're so close now is those, a lot of the walls that could have easily, because I've been gone for nine or 10 years, you know, I don't get home very often, but we are all about as close as I think we've ever been. And um, a lot of it is probably related to that. And then some of my siblings went through school and didn't have that type of experience and didn't have that type of, those types of relationships and open and, and upfront and dealing with things together and openly. And it shows because they're not as close. And so I think that that's what is important. Racism is, it's a strong word, but I do think it's the right word. I mean, it, as you talk about it and, or as we talk about it, I guess, it's a big word and a heavy word mm -hmm. and in, in many cases, the right word, but it also isn't the final word. Yeah. And just like the redemptive stories from Nazi Germany or from the 1800s where, where Nazi captors realized the horribleness that they were perpetuating and then repented or, or slave owners realized the wrong they had furthered and repented, the tendencies can change, whether it's yeah. racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's classism, we can become aware, we can ask forgiveness, we can humble ourselves, we can open our minds and change. You mentioned the, the friends that you've developed over the years through training and things like that. Thinking back to maybe high school or, or that time period of your life and friendships that you have had then, how would you maybe help define or describe the difference between maybe not being racist versus really seeing other people. Yeah, not be, not being racist. So that anti-racism and racist thing is is kind of cool and again not a new concept, but I think that that's where we're trying to clarify the vocabulary a little bit and a lot of people are like I we're friends, there's no way I could be racist or like there's there's things like that and, that I've heard and I don't disagree but anti-racism is active and there is a, there's an element of awareness to it. So you go living your life and ignoring the undercurrent and ignoring that it's there does not make you not part of the issue, if you will. And I'm at fault for this too, is I, in a way, yeah, I mean, this, this is hard for me to even talk about, but like at NYU, I spent a lot of time trying to avoid being a part of their multicultural club because I just didn't want to be categorized. And I was just like, I don't, 
I don't know. Like I just, I saw them as the speaking up too much and wanting to create things. And like, we're talking about like this, like almost too much. And I was like, I, I'm, I'm okay. Like I'm going to deal with people as they come and I'm going to do it as Aaron and I'm going to, and I'm going to deal with my group and, and go, go through things. But it took that situation later where it was, I was just like, man, this is a huge problem. Like I moved to New York to, to see diversity and to see people mold together. And it just wasn't there. And I realized that I was doing a disservice and I was part of the problem. You can't just avoid this stuff. And if you're not a part of it, you're letting it go. And so I think that that's the difference between being a true racist. Sorry, I don't mean to use that word again, but or anti-racism. Like there's there has to has to be a, a more upfront way to look at it. And so I think that that's that's the difference. And that that's that's kind of what's important. And even within my family, like there's been times where you can't understand it till you see it or experience it. And even if you read stories about it. You don't understand it. Even the first time that I experienced real racism, I had read multiple books about Jackie Robinson. I had read about Martin Luther King. I had done all this stuff, but to experience it was it made me sick. And I mean, obviously, but it was just like one of those things where I was even just at a loss for words mm-hmm. and didn't know how to react. So it's until you kind of open your eyes and want to go through it, and it usually takes you knowing someone and really caring about someone and for you to kind of open that door and, and let those emotions in. Cause that, that's what it is. It's, it's kind of an emotional response. You have to have a connection to it. You have to have your heart open to it for it to hit you in a way that's going to make you part of the solution. I'm Will Coster. And on this episode's financial wellness tip, I'm going to be introducing a topic I like to call asset location. Now, that's not to be confused with echolocation or asset allocation, but asset location is in my mind what refers to where on the balance sheet are your assets. By that, I mean, is the majority of your wealth tied up in your house? How about in your pre-tax retirement account like a 401k or IRA? Or have you been planning ahead and have a good mix of assets across different type of accounts? Having a combination of pre-tax and tax-free money available is invaluable when it comes to withdrawing money in retirement. If you have all of your money in pre-tax accounts, you will have to withdraw more from the account than you actually need because every dollar will be taxed at ordinary income tax rates. Additionally, it is important to have ample liquidity in retirement because selling tangible assets to fund your living expenses in retirement is not something you want to rely on. Also, it's important to remember that having the appropriate amount of risk in your accounts is necessary to keep up with inflation, but not to have your account balances too exposed to market fluctuations. Retirement, or financial independence, is often one of the biggest goals for physicians and dentists. If you need help with your retirement planning, check out some of our free resources, which we will link to in the show notes. For this episode's financial wellness tip, I'm Will Koster. Now, I want to believe or tend to believe, I hope not wrongly, that most listeners of this show don't don't engage in 
overt racism uh, or, or bring that approach to their, their day or condone prejudice. But if there's one thing I feel like I'm learning over the last several years is that this isn't a problem that's in other people and an us them sort of thing. It's, it's a we thing, kind of like what you're bringing up here. Can you think of scenarios or, or maybe share with us examples of subconscious racism or bias that you've experienced that maybe people aren't even aware of? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's, there's plenty. And I think just focusing kind of now professionally, obviously black in medicine or black in orthopedics was what I do. It's we're about 1.5% of the group and women is six or 7% of the group. So we're obviously on the lower end of that spectrum. And we, there's been progress in kind of just acceptance of that fact, but obvious things that still occur. And we had an intern that reached out recently, having dealt with something with a patient that we had all experienced and, and had to deal with. And usually it's related to just not being seen as a physician, I guess, if you will. And patients uh, just not trusting that you're the doctor or, or anything like that. And then even taking us back to just, I think, honestly, I, I think women have it harder even. And I think they're part of this conversation too. But there's times where I have a female attending and I'm the fellow and, or the resident. And I have to redirect the patient from me to the attending who is taking care of them because that stuff happens all the time. And there's a preconceived notion and it's embarrassing for that patient. Sometimes, sometimes they don't really care. But it's embarrassing sometimes to try to correct people and to, to do that. But that moment is a moment where they have to kind of recognize this is the authoritarian. Dr. So-and-so is my doctor and I'm learning from her. And so it's just, eyes over here is essentially kind of the point. So it's, it's constantly there. There's a new kind of movement going around. Hero in a white coat. I don't remember the whole, the whole line. He's, one of, he's someone I know, but essentially just pointing out the fact that in the hospital, I am a doctor, but when I leave in street clothes, I just become another black man. And so those types of things are constantly kind of in the back of my mind. And on my car, I have my white coat draped over my car seat. It's almost just a little bit of a safety blanket. To When I get pulled over, it's, it's just like I'm safer. It's essentially kind of what it kind of points out. And it's a sad, sad thing, but it's there. And I think that those types of things are constantly happening. And we almost have to kind of decide which ones are worth bringing up or addressing at times, which is as hard as dealing with them and themselves. It's, it almost just takes more energy to think about it than to, to deal with them up front. Has there been a circumstance where, where there's been an environment or an action or something where you've just had to speak up? Yeah. I mean, often I don't try to be rude or anything, but I, I don't have a lot of problems speaking up and I've had a situation with patient. I mean, most recently someone just talking politics and, and getting into things that don't need to be talked about and clearly are not things that I'm going to agree with. And so I, I essentially just had to say it's quiet time and go back to doing what I'm doing. Cause I, I mean, I still have to do my job and then take care of the, the patient, but yeah, it's essentially just, we're going to work in silence now and shut that down, but it's constant and everyone has their different thresholds for it. And we do have to kind of be, there's a fine line. And I think black women, everyone, if you address too much, you're 
the whistleblower or you're, you're, you're too much or you're high maintenance or whatever label you want to put on it. If you don't dress enough, you're not doing enough. You know, it's just kind of, there's a fine line there. And I think it has even shifted a little bit over the past year, just because of just how upfront things are. And that's the nature of the beast, but it's also everyone just kind of realizing that we got to do, do better. Yeah. Now this, the topic and the way we've been talking about it so far is, is so much of just the interpersonal relationship and the way that mm-hmm. different people view each other and treat each other and things like that. But, but there's also a really, a very real element of this that takes place internally between your own ears. I'm thinking of the podcast just before this one where I interviewed Dr. Gail Gazelle. And, and for those of you listening, if you haven't heard that episode, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the interview with Dr. Gail Gazelle. But she introduced to me the imposter syndrome. And I think that that belongs in this conversation as well. Talk a little bit about that, Aaron. Yeah, imposter syndrome is, I mean, it's something I, I still deal with. And I think, I think everybody probably does in certain ways. So imposter syndrome is essentially just from a the most simple standpoint is just essentially a person that is in a field or a group. They've earned that right, and they've obviously gotten there, but just never quite feel like they deserve to be there and they deserve that that spot, that place. It's that little internal tug of war of you looking around and just thinking like they're going to find me out, like I'm not going to survive in this environment. And so it's just something that I think that anybody like self-doubt and insecurity, it preys on that. What I think imposter syndrome also adds that is an element of that systemic issue though, as well, because a lot of this is because of the environment, you know, one of the big things right now is we're trying to give women we're trying to give black men, like we're trying to push people into the field because we obviously don't have the numbers and we want them to feel comfortable there. But at the same time, like, I want you to feel comfortable here, but I'm also telling you, you're about to come into an environment where you may be the only one, or you may be one of a few. So you have to be comfortable not being comfortable is essentially what the message. And again, I'm a very blunt person. So like when I'm mentoring a female med student or anything like that, I'm not painting a pretty picture. Like I try to talk to them about the love of, of what we do and how awesome it is. But I'm, I'm like, you just need to understand I think you're a boss for doing this. I think you're amazing for wanting to do this, but you have to come in ready because you're going to be dealing with stuff on a day-to-day basis that is going to challenge you beyond just learning and dealing with the job. I just want you to come in and be ready for that. And so that's that's a big thing because imposter syndrome is just constant. And I've dealt with it at every single stage. I still don't know what I'm doing here, honestly. Like, hey, medicine was kind of like, oh, I'm going to do this. Like... And then it became people saying, well, you're not going to be able to do this. And it became a challenge. And so I kept going. And I'm just, I'm very fortunate that it's worked out and I love love what I do. But at the same time, I'm just like, at every stage, I'm almost just like, something's going to, the ball's going to drop or something's going to happen. That's the biggest thing. And I think that that's one thing that we can kind of do better is see that and be a little bit more open and honest about what that can do to your emotional health and, and things like that. And, and especially just if you're taking care of or have, have someone in, in your groups or hospitals or things like that, that are clearly 
a minority or in a in a minority group just be aware like you may not see these things happen on a day-to-day basis but this stuff is there and it requires just a little bit more openness and understanding and these people are going to be they deal with situations different i deal with things differently than the majority of people because of my background because of the things that i've done and you can either look at me and say and judge those actions and then jump on those and try to categorize me but I mean, I haven't figured it out myself. So you go ahead and try, but it's very hard to hard to do. So you imposter syndrome is all over the place and it's it it sucks. But it's a great way for people to kind of connect because everyone has felt imposter syndrome at some point in their life and can connect to that awful feeling of being the only person in a situation. And if you can put yourself in that mentality, I think that that's a good step forward in kind of helping the process. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, overall, as, as I have conversations with physicians and surgeons and dentists, you know, daily and week in, week out, I, I feel like it, what gives me hope is that it feels to me that there's a growing tone of authenticity and a willingness to talk about things. And so just the more we put things out there, the more there's a willingness to talk about burnout or imposter syndrome or racism or suicide, or the better we can work through these things and grow through them. Aaron, as we close, I want to pivot back to the lessons you learned in your home growing up in a family full of siblings who in many ways were more different from each other than you were like each other. Yeah. And now as a doctor, as an adult, when you're in circumstances where you, your antenna is going up because you're feeling judged for being different, or maybe you're, you're feeling tempted to judge someone without fully understanding them, what is a, a question that you've learned to ask to help open the relationship instead of shutting it down with prejudice? That's big. And I, I wouldn't say there's a question that goes off in my mind, but definitely a, a stop, like you're kind of describing. My personality is just, I just have a, a kind of level way that I deal with things. And it's always been something that it opens the door for people to kind of decide what's going on in my head or how I'm reacting to a situation or doing things like that. So I've always kind of had that. And then it's just, it's just never, almost never been accurate. So it, it's always required a conversation and it, it's, that's all it takes because I'm also an open book. So if you want to know me or get to know me, then it just it takes a conversation. And so that's kind of how I have approached things. And I, I'm a big believer in just getting along and kind of working through things and then doing our jobs. Like we don't have to be best friends, but we can be colleagues and good. But if it gets to a point where we need to have a conversation or things do get that moment where I'm like, I, I kind of want to judge you, like, you know, something, something like that. That's when I kind of that red flag goes up and I, it's either I need to address it and we need to have a conversation or I need to exit and separate. And that's just how I've kind of approached things from that standpoint, just because I, I know what it's like to have that and have that used against me. And so that's kind of how I just, I try to, I try to take advantage of things. And so I've seen it a lot. And even just with people like mentees and like close friends, when I try to give people advice and use personal anecdotes and things like that, it can, it can be frustrating. And, and I do that to give 
in my opinion and advice, but it's not to say things are done my way is the right way. Cause I just don't believe that there is any way that is the exact right way to, to have these conversations, to deal with these issues. You have to try. And so I'm willing to talk these, this stuff through and have these tough conversations and they're, they're not fun and they aren't good. And we're going to struggle through them. You're going to say something that's going to make me mad. And I'm going to say something that's going to bother you. And that's kind of the, the turning point is, are we going to push through that and with authenticity and, and, and be, and care about each other? Like it's, that's kind of is staying in is staying in these conversations, staying in people's lives is about caring and, and that type of love that comes with that. And it requires a little bit of resilience in the personal life. So you can walk away and categorize someone or you can stay in there and try to understand them. And one of the funniest things, one of my very close friends in residency read that recent article and we had a lot of conversations, dealt with stuff, had had kind of mentored together. But he texted me after that and he essentially was just like, I had no clue about your background or the depth of it. And it makes more sense why you not demand, but have higher expectations of people now that I've seen that. And I just like laughed and I'm just like, dude, so you just thought I was just, just demanding and like, just that had too much expert. Like I thought, like, I didn't realize how little people do know about me and, or how little I do know about certain people. And then you're still judging, like making judgments and like thinking that you understand people's motives and, the, and are understanding those people and are jumping on that bandwagon. We had dealt with stuff together and really got like became very close. But suddenly he's just like, oh, I get it. Now. Like, I get why you are the way you are. And it just was like one of those moments I was like, man, I think that's perfectly fine because we don't have to get into the nitty gritty of everyone of each other's lives to to love each other and to care about each other. But it's such a eye-opening thing to see his reaction and just be like, if he had been on the category and not liked how I was doing things and not liked the message that I was spreading, that would have been tough because yeah, yeah. clearly it's based in a lot of what I grew up with. And, and that's kind of what me and my family have always done. That, that's what we were taught is if you do things out of love and do things with the right motives and out of that genuine, authentic caring, you may not be the most loved person in the world, but you're doing the right things and you're, it's a worthwhile cause. And so that's kind of how we just have always been, been raised. Is. I think you're touching on something that has kind of been striking me over the last, I don't know, months or years. And the why is so important. And as people, as a country, I know even in my own marriage, I'm not going to argue my spouse into seeing my point. And I'm not going to argue other people into believing they're wrong. But if I can slow down and ask, wait, why are you believing this? Or why are you coming at this so strong? Or why, are you, why is this feeling like the hill to die on? Then I can begin to understand a little more what's driving them or what's behind it. And then we can kind of come, come together, move together when we will stop and, and ask why. So. You referenced your article a minute. I want you to give it another shout out. So you've written a more detailed narrative of your background and story. What's the website where folks can find that if they want to check it out? Yeah, Love What Matters is the website. And it's, yeah. a, it's a very nice website, just a lot of nice heartfelt stories. And that article is currently pinned to my Twitter. Well, Aaron, 
I am so grateful that you were willing to give this conversation a try. And it has been fun for me and eye-opening too. So thank you. I appreciate your willingness to come on here too. It's it's the, not an easy thing to do, and but it's good. I mean, it's yeah. it's good to, good to see and good to hear. We won't change everything, but hopefully the conversation at least makes a bit part in helping to change the tone. So thanks for being here. And thanks to you for giving us some of your time listening to the conversation today. We appreciate you listening to the Prosperous Stock podcast. We'd love it if you'd subscribe. Then you'll know every other Monday when we've got new episodes coming out. Also, uh, welcome your feedback. You're welcome to email me, Shane, at White Coat Well, with any thoughts or suggestions you have, or if there's compelling stories you know from your colleagues. Love to understand that and see about having them on the show as well. So thanks so much. We'll see you back here next time. This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.